This episode was previously part of Verwondering, the leading design podcast of the Netherlands. This show was the predecessor to Memorable Design. It allows the actors to sort of improvise, and then they can bring something to it as well. They can yeah. add, and, and I mean, particularly um, Robert Downey Jr. Yeah. as Tony Stark, he's great at this stuff. He just shows up on set. They say, hey, there's going to be a hologram in front of you, or there's going to be a screen that you're interacting with. And he goes wild. And he does this incredible blend of gestures and actions that are very precise and totally arbitrary, <laughs> but are they're precise enough that they feel like, okay, this is a dial, this is a, you know, a gesture box or or whatnot. We always record this podcast in person because when it comes to really getting to know each other, conversations in real life are hard to beat. That's why I'm proud to share that today's episode came together in partnership with the Next Web. This conference is Europe's leading tech festival. It's where you can meet founders, fire starters, and VCs. Or heck, even a particle physicist from CERN, like Dr. James Beecham, who calls it a Woodstock for innovators. Year-round, you can follow TNW's opinionated coverage of the tech news that matters. Just go to thenextweb.com or follow them on any platform that craves likes. TNW is a Financial Times company. This is season one of Memberful Design, a show about firestarters sparking initiatives that have a lasting impact. It was formerly known as Verwondering, an award-winning Dutch design podcast. Now we're bringing it to the international stage in English. Discover what it takes to let your plan succeed and create meaningful connections. The power of the collective requires the commitment of the individual. In every episode, Harold Dunning, founder of Design Studio Monkai and co-founder of journalism platform The Correspondent, talks to other designers, creative directors, artists and entrepreneurs about the impact of their work. We want to hear from you too. You can visit memberful.design to share your thoughts and check out the show's gallery. Make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing to Memberful Design on your favorite podcast platform. And sign up for our newsletter at memberful.design. The year I started Momkai, Steven Spielberg's Minority Report came out. A film that captures so much that a kid in digital design could dream of. The story is about a pre-crime chief, played by Tom Cruise, who stops crimes before they're being committed. To do so, he and his team swipe screens of future visions, left and right, with big hand gestures, to construct spicy murder plots. Sitting in the cinema, the film had a major impact on me and my friends. And not just us, it also impacted the design community at large. We wondered how people in the future would interact and what it would be like to work on those crazy interfaces now. Enter John Lepore, my special guest today, who did more than wonder. He changed how we imagine the future of technology, with Tony Stark on his side. John is the former Principal Creative Director of Perception, an Emmy-nominated design lab from New York, where for the past 16 years he's pioneered UI in films. If you're watching any blockbuster where a character interacts with an advanced technology, there's a solid chance that he and his team have conceptualized it, designed it, animated it, and incorporated it into the film as a visual effect. Just in the Marvel Universe alone, there's so much that he's been part of. The Adventures, Thor, Iron Man, Captain America, Spider-Man. One of his best is the beautiful Wakanda tech for Black Panther. Mid-air haptic controls that you could almost feel yourself. Watch the film and you can imagine how vibranium sand could empower any tribe. His work is based on real-world research, like that of MIT or the University of Tokyo. And just as often, it's being applied for real-world clients too. Many white-labeled, buried on the piles of NDAs, top-secret hush-hush. But we can share brands like SpaceX, Audi, Ford, Microsoft's HoloLens, or the all-new Hummer EV. Discover in this episode how to take audience members on a journey 
where they can understand future interactions and why it's important to obsess over the reality of any detail. John, welcome to the studio of Momkai. Harold, thank you so much for, for having me. It's great to be here in your beautiful studio. Thank you. Um, why was your childhood ruined by the Lamborghini Countach? <laughs> so uh, when, when I was a kid, I was deeply fascinated with exotic sports cars. And, and I still am today, you know, as, as many of us are when we're that age, you know, we love these wild shapes and forms, Lamborghini Countach, Ferrari Testarossa, mm -hmm. um, the, the more wild, uh, the, the more exciting to me, I, I looked at these vehicles and I would, I would say to my dad, why, like, why can't every car look like the Lamborghini Countach, right? Yeah. Like it's the, it's the per, it's obviously the perfect design. It's the perfect shape. Why does our Toyota not shaped exactly <laughs> like that? And, uh, my father explained it to me as, well, you know, John, you see, it doesn't just look that way because it looks cool and exciting. It's shaped that way because having a pointy front end helps it to cut through the air and achieve a, a higher top speed. It's wider at the back so that it can fit this enormous V12 engine. And all of those things make it actually perform better as an exotic sports car. And you know, I, I, I was very fascinated by this and he continued to kind of like, you know, poke me a little bit and say, you know, you, you only are excited by it because it looks wonderful, but I, I am deeply overwhelmed by it because it is this blend of the way that it, it functions better, the way that it, it's able to achieve its goals better are impacting the way that it looks. And both of those things are benefiting in the process. And for me, that became my foundational understanding of just what design is. Beautiful. Yeah, so for anyone that doesn't have a mental picture of the car, it's like a really slick, really low uh, Italian sports car. People might remember it from uh, the scene in uh, The Wolf of Wall Street mm -hmm. where Leonardo DiCaprio thinks <laughs> he cruises home yep. very solid, yep. very good, but he's totally high and he kind of he kind of drops out of the car and yep. he's like, so you remember the car that he's like, I mean, it's, it's the perfect symbol of 1980s excess, yeah, right? Perfect, and yeah. and everything being over the top and as ambitious as could be. But that's, you know, and, and even I'm sure in the 1980s, I'm sure there are many who would see that would think it was a garish, tasteless sort yeah. of object. But for any child around the world, you know, it yeah. lights you up. It gets you so excited when you see these things. Yeah, exactly. You know, it was beautiful. Designed by Bertone, the, mm -hmm. the design yep. studio, always in competition with uh, Piniferini that yep. designed many of the of the Ferraris. They also did the last uh, Lancia Stratos. They're yes, really beautiful. yeah, another That's, favorite yeah. of mine. I had a I had a, a little matchbox car of the Lancia Stratos with the. Uh, the Alitalia uh, livery on it, the sort of rally car style, and, and that's always been a, a super cool one uh, for me. It's 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 amazing how these sort of things, especially when you're a kid and you develop that affection for them, you don't ever let it go. Like no, always, it's, 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 there's uh, you know, I could see a you know, Bugatti drive down the street. And I would be interested, oh, look, there's a Bugatti. But if Alancia Stratos yeah. came driving down the street, I would lose my mind. Yeah. I would, yeah, it's, it's... And you don't see those that really yeah, that often. Certainly. We will also drop um, anything that we mention. Uh, we drop the images uh, on uh, verwondering.com in the gallery because I think we lose half the people now with, <laughs> if we go too deep into the cars. But I think what, what combines these cars is that they really look uh, futuristic mm -hmm. but i noticed that you don't really like the word futurist or if you are being called a futurist why is that when it comes down to it i mean we we all have uh the right to say we i mean who isn't thinking in some way shape or form about the future and especially I think very, as a and as a designer of course uh, absolutely you kind of live in the future and you know uh, i so for me you know it's uh there's futurists and then I think there are, you know, some, some people that I've been very fortunate to collaborate with in, in my career 
and that I consider myself a, a part of a, a, a group of people who really are taking intensely seriously this idea of balancing both the more imaginative aspects of what the future means to us while also factoring in all of the, the pragmatic constraints and, and challenges and responsibilities that come with that. Yeah, I could see that really uh, beautiful come together in, uh, in, in uh, Black Panther, the, the 2018 uh, blockbuster set in Wakanda, a fictional mm -hmm. ca country in the, in the center of Africa. Take us through this process. What what happened there? I think you were allowed to really touch upon so much of that fictional technology. So without question, Black Panther was my favorite project that I had the opportunity to contribute to when I was uh, leading the team at at Perception. And you know, for for me as someone who's focused on this idea of conceptualizing future technologies for for fiction and for reality. Black Panther was an absolute dream job, dream brief, perfect brief that you yeah. could ever receive from a client. The team at Marvel Studios reached out to us. They were still in the process of finishing the script for the film. And they said, we would like you all to have a conversation with the director, Ryan Coogler, and just, we know you all are very well tuned into this space. If you could have a conversation with him about relevant future technologies, emerging tech, interesting advances, or, or uh, things that are happening in science and engineering that we should be factoring in as we are shaping our story, uh, that would be really helpful for us. And it's it's really important for this film because in Black Panther, the story takes place in this fictional world of Wakanda. Wakanda must have the most advanced tech ever seen on screen. It has to be more advanced than Tony Stark. It needs yeah, to be yeah. more advanced than Star Wars or James Bond or anything that we've ever yeah. seen anywhere. And not only that, the society of Wakanda has been closed off from the rest of the world. So it shouldn't feel like a natural progression of just some of the things that we have today yeah, yeah, in our yeah. everyday lives. It should feel very unique, very, very distinct. Um, beyond that, there was one other parameter that they gave us and they said, and, and something you should know is that, you know, the society of Wakanda is built around this powerful element, this mineral known as Vibranium, and we said, "Oh, that sounds cool. What's vibranium?" Yeah. And they said, well, "We're not really sure. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Help us figure it out." So we we started there, and the the first thing that we had to go on this idea of vibranium for us, we were thinking, "All right, well, vibranium, vibration, um, sound, haptics, ultrasonic sound waves, all these different things," and we started compiling this research, and we touched on a number of different things from, you know, echolocation and sonar that, you know, bats or dolphins yeah. will use with, with each other. We were looking at uh, these beautiful phenomena like uh, cymatics, which is when sound frequencies can actually generate geometric patterns, really beautiful uh, concept. And there was this whole other thing of uh, ultrasonic sound waves. Um, we had spent a few years prior working on this project on this special piece of hardware called uh, the Ultra Haptics Kit, which was an array of little uh, ultrasonic transducers, almost like mini speakers mm -hmm. that would send uh, sound waves that are both you know invisible and you also don't hear them uh, into the air. And if you would hold your hand in the air over this array of transducers, you would feel a haptic sensation on your hand. And, and they basically were, were calling this technology mid-air haptics. We were working on developing it for an automotive application, um, you know, because we're always running into this problem or this challenge of like touch screens, they're great, they're very mm -hmm. adaptable, they're very flexible, they mm -hmm. can do so many different things, but, you don't have that 
tactile response. You don't have that physical no. feedback. Because haptic is uh, when your phone also when your like phone vibrates, right? That is a yeah, haptic uh, feedback. Those, there's a little, yeah, there's little motors inside your phone. Yeah. And I think we're going to continue, you know, to see a lot more of ways that, because I think we're, we're reaching almost like the limit of yeah. the touch screen and, you know, haptics are going to continue to be more and more important. So we were really excited working with this uh, mid-air haptic content for an automotive application while we were doing this we realized that at the university of tokyo there was a team that were using the same exact piece of hardware rather than to create mid-air haptics they were using it to actually levitate styrofoam particles like little beads of styrofoam they could get to hover in space and actually move around and have full control over the movement of a floating particle. And they were doing this with probably up to like, I don't know, 50 or 75 bits of particulate at the same time. And it was, it was still kind of primitive, but unbelievably fascinating. Yeah. So through that, that for, for myself personally, the moment I saw that, I was immediately thinking like, oh, this is, this could mean a lot in terms of physical interfaces and things that you could control and interact with. Did you see that in real life or you saw a video of it? Like? This was something that we had come across as just while we were researching around this, this unique piece of hardware that we yeah. were playing with. Um, and you know, it, it stuck with me and pretty much the moment that we started talking about Black Panther and vibranium yeah. and sound, we we dug that reference back up and we started thinking all right well using this as a technological foundation we think there's a way that we could propose to the filmmakers that rather than visual storytelling elements in wakanda being holograms as, we, as we've seen in in many other movies you know I was, since obi-wan kenobi since the literally, star so, wars yeah. and and that's an interesting thing right there yeah. right ever since star wars 1977 the idea of a hologram is that it is glowing blue light projected yeah. and to this day holograms like that do not exist holograms yeah. are not yet real the closest yeah. thing that we have to holograms are like pepper's ghost techniques where we're using elaborate reflections to create something that responds to your perspective and and point of view and whatnot but holograms do not exist and so every film that has ever had a hologram appear in it has been referencing the movie before it yeah, that yeah, had a hologram yeah. in it which yeah. was referencing the movie before it that had all and so this whole time science fiction has been filled with glowing blue shit, right? That's yeah, yeah, like the, it's, um, the future has a, it's, it's become a look and not so much an idea. Exactly. And so for, for us with Black Panther, it was an opportunity. And I mean, this is something, you know, like any, any designer, any creative is always going to want to try and like rethink some of the the tropes or the yeah, cliches yeah. Yeah. of whatever space they're working in. But for us, it was the absolute perfect opportunity to go straight to the filmmakers and say, well, in the world of Wakanda, it is not gonna be the 10th movie this year to come out to have glowing blue shit. <laughs> it is going to be this idea where vibranium particulate can flock in midair, can yeah. arrange into physical three-dimensional sculptures that form a physical shape that are tactile, that are something that you can touch and feel, but also can animate with this wild level of fidelity and sophistication. It's like a black sand, right? Like it's sort of floating so, in the air. Yeah, so the, the vibranium sand is these granular black uh, sands that have, you know, this almost glittering quality yeah. to them. I mean, sand is, you know, the the, uh, sand is effectively glass, right? Yeah. And so there's a little bit of like translucency ah. or reflectivity to it. And so it, it came together looking really beautiful, really detailed and really complex. And also it was this huge technical challenge because we're working with like the physics of yeah. sand and yeah. doing all these elaborate um, particle simulations and, and whatnot. To open something, it's a gentle movement rather than, yeah, a click to open, right? It's it's much more like browsing through sand. And this was really important to us was uh, 
one of the things that we did to sort of challenge ourselves was we built in our office a sand table. Like we just, you know, we got 50 pounds of sand. And, you were four and, again. You know, yeah, we, we were we were little kids playing in a sandbox. We literally had little toy trucks that we glued sand to and, and everything. This is your work. And I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 I feel bad on the days that I would bring my kids to work with yeah. me and I would show them what I do. And there's toys of superheroes <laughs> everywhere. There's, you know, cars on so the, awesome. toy cars on the floor. And I'm realizing that I need to send my kids to work with somebody else so that they can understand yeah. that, you know, work is, is <laughs> you know, it's, it's not just playing around. But we, it, it was a really important thing for us to get literally our hands on sand as a way of reminding ourselves like, all right, well, you know, when we would first talk about interactions, okay, he needs to look inside the trucks that are down on the ground that he's monitoring. And I think immediately everyone starts thinking, okay, maybe there's like an interesting like gesture that he does to like open up an x-ray viewing window through yeah. the sand and whatnot. And, you know, we would put our hands in the sandbox and we'd very quickly just arrive at, well, well no, it's just sand. So you should just just brush yeah. the sand away and, re and interact with it yeah. like it's sand. Let's take advantage of every attribute that is in this paradigm that we've, that we've created. Yeah, it's so awesome. And how does it then work? Like it's, um, you have these conversations with the director, they gonna shoot, is it, are you on set or is it months later you get footage in and you see how they will, how you, how you should incorporate your, your technology uh, vision? So it's a little bit of everything. And there's uh, some instances where there's things like uh, screens or content that maybe will be on monitors or projected on set that are created or sometimes queued up in mm -hmm. person. But on something like Black Panther, a lot of it was doing all of this work in advance of their shooting just to sort of prototype out these concepts and figure out how they would work, how they would function. And we did everything from making lo-fi CG animated tests of things shifting in one way or the sand would emanate from one direction or move with a rhythmic bounce to incorporate the sort of like sound wave technology uh, to also just making home movies of us playing around yeah. in our sandbox and, and things like that. All of that content that we were creating ended up actually becoming a sort of uh, instruction manual if you will, yeah. or, or a sort of like, almost like a Ikea booklet of yeah. how to interact with, with vibranium sand. And even director Ryan Coogler would pull these materials up on set and show the actors and the performers and say, see, this is the thing, you know, it's going yeah. to be added as a visual effect yeah. nine months from now. Yeah. But right now you're going to be interacting with something like this and watch these dweebs in new yeah. york who are playing with it as a as a reference for how this can function and how to how to work with it so they would have like a little video or stuff like mm -hmm. the, the like the prototypes that you did like an actor could see that and thought like oh now i understand what i need to do and it's and it's nice too because it also provides the actors you know because nothing's set in stone it's not yeah. oh you have to be positioned yeah. exactly like this otherwise yeah. the content won't fit yeah. it allows the actors to sort of improvise and then they can bring something to it as well they can yeah. add and, and i mean particularly um Robert Downey Jr. Yeah. as Tony Stark, he's great at this stuff. He just shows up on set. They say, hey, there's gonna be a hologram in front of you or there's going to be a screen that you're interacting with. And he goes wild. And he does this incredible blend of gestures and actions that are very precise and totally arbitrary, <laughs> but are they're precise enough that they feel like, okay, this is a dial, this is a, you know, a gesture box or or whatnot. And then he throws in all these casual flourishes, like he'll, you know, uh, instead of just, you know, dragging something to the trash can, he yeah. will brush it away or he will uh, crumple up something and throw it over his shoulder. Or, or whatnot. Um, so there's there's many times in those instances where you're coming to it in the post-production process as the film is being edited, as visual effects are being applied. And sometimes you have to actually like redesign an interface or the layout of buttons or controls or, or things. 
based on those actions that are taking place, which can require at times a, a bit of improvising. Yeah, because your relationship, especially with Marvel, that didn't uh, came out of nowhere, of course. Uh, the Iron Man too. That was that was the first time you work with them, right? Take us to the moment that you had to do your your presentation, your first concept. So. Uh, it was for me the opportunity to contribute to Iron Man 2 was uh, like a total shock to the system. It was a very exciting, very electrifying moment in in my career, and we were called up to contribute to a very small piece of the film. They had a on set projection for what would be the the Stark Expo, this giant sort of almost keynote presentation that the main character, Tony Stark, is is delivering. And they didn't like whatever content they had that was being projected behind him. And so one of the producers of the film had worked with us uh, years back on some much smaller projects. And he said, I know these guys in New York, they're pretty good at this kind of stuff and they work really fast. I think they can come in and give us some some new ideas on this. So we put a bunch of different concepts together. Uh, we were presenting them to John Favreau and the executive producers of the film. And as we were going through the concepts, they were saying, oh, well, we like this one. This is pretty cool. And this one's interesting. And there was one that came up and we could just barely hear in the background of the conference call, somebody saying, oh, that one kind of reminds me of Tony's glass phone. And our ears perked up and like we all were looking at each other in the room. We were like, glass did, phone. did they just say glass phone? <laughs> and we were super excited about this. And so we got off this call with them. We honed in on making this Stark Expo deliverable, which we poured everything that we had into. We we made sure that we we killed it as hard as we All possibly nighters. could. Uh, did, we did whatever we had to do to, you know, at every step, give them, and here's some alternate options. And if you don't like this, and we animated this one to loop a little longer so that if you need, and, and whatever, we, we made sure that we were giving them the absolute best service that we could. And then the moment we delivered that, basically over a weekend, Myself and a, and a few guys in the studio, we, we went to Home Depot. We got a piece of glass cut in the approximate shape of a iPhone, which was in the very earliest days of iPhone at the time. This is 2009, I think? This was, yeah, this was probably uh, 2008 or 2009 that we were working on this. And we made a little home movie of us interacting with this piece of glass, but made probably 40 seconds of a suite of different functions and interactions that would happen on a glass phone. And there was things like, uh, uh, you know, surveillance mapping, there was sending, you know, playful messages. Uh, there were all these different interactions. And at the end of the video, just to sort of push it over the top, you put the, the glass phone down on the table and it projected upwards from it a volumetric hologram of like a diagram of a Iron Man helmet that would expand open in a sort of exploded view and, and whatnot. So we poured everything we could into this test over a weekend. We sent it over to the team at Marvel Studios and we just sort of coyly said, hey, we thought there was some mention of a glass phone. So we just thought, you know, we just, <laughs> we just put this little thing together, you know, let us know what you think. And we didn't hear anything from them. They, they, did, they just flat out didn't respond to us. And we were very concerned. We were wondering, oh, did we insult them? What did we do? <laughs> yeah, we don't yeah, like. Yeah, we yeah. don't know how yeah. these big shot movie producers <laughs> think. Uh, I wonder, you know, if that was a problem. Oh boy. And what it was was they were they were deep in the process of filming their movie, their very complicated and elaborate movie with many different locations all over the world that they're traveling between and doing these super complex shoots. And as the film transitioned months later into the post-production process when they begin really thinking seriously about the visual effects incorporated into the film, we got a call from them and they said, oh, John John Favreau liked your your phone test. The film director. The film director John Favreau uh, liked your phone test. Would you guys like to work on Tony's glass phone? We were like losing our minds. I mean, it's like instant party in yeah. the office. 
uh, unbelievably exciting. And uh, we said, absolutely. And then they said, oh, and he's also got a, you know, a glass coffee table uh, that needs some graphics on it. We said, absolutely, we will do that as well. And as we were working on these things, we started getting a couple more requests that would pop up and it would be, okay, well, there's actually a window in his bedroom and there's a, another window in the living room that needs graphics and he's going to the Monaco Grand Prix and that's gonna need graphics and there's all, and there was like one thing after another, it kept stacking up and I think by the time our work on the film was finished, we ended up delivering 125 visual effects shots for Iron Man 2, which in the grand scheme of a film like that is relatively small. A film like that may have as many as uh, 1,500 or 2,000 visual effects shots in it. But for a tiny team like ours, yeah. this was enormous. And especially for our first time ever contributing to a feature film um, was a huge opportunity for us. And, and an incredible experience all around. Yeah, I can imagine that's super exciting for, for a team. I think what strikes me also with what you created with your teams was that it feels really advanced, but somehow also kind of realistic. I still can imagine what, what happens there. It reminds me a lot of the Maya Principle by Raymond Louis, like a legendary designer from the 50s. He designed everything from Air Force One to Lucky Strike logo and all that. And he called that the, the Maya Principle standing for most advanced yet acceptable. Mm -hmm. It states that people like things that are familiar but surprising uh, and vice versa. How do you go about to making sure you still can understand it as an, as an audience? So that's a really important factor that goes into all of this because I think you can sit around in a room full of smart people and brainstorm what would be the most advanced thing in the world and you'll quickly arrive at something along the lines of like, I have a neural connection to a technology <laughs> where I imagine something and it happens. And that's so distant from being familiar that it doesn't seem plausible. It doesn't seem acceptable. It's also in the context of like a feature film, it doesn't give you anything to look at. It doesn't give mm -hmm. you anything to present to your audience and and creates other other challenges. So I think there's there's so much that goes into that. And that was why in in Black Panther it was really important for us that we had this underlying logic of ultrasonic sound waves can levitate this matter in the air and that it it created this balance of a framework for our creative team to work within to have some sort of rails and guides to get to this particular execution. It gave us something to have a conversation about with the rest of the filmmakers who, for us to be able to say to them, this is not magic. Yeah, yeah. This is not just something that's totally arbitrary and just uh, a bunch of creative artists said, this would be cool, you know, yeah. wouldn't it be cool if dot, yeah. dot, dot. So with something like Black Panther, it was unbelievably important for us to have these this underpinning logic, this yeah. tie back to reality, which does a number of different things for us in the process. Um, having this logical construct of ultrasonic sound waves uh, gave our own creative team a sort of uh, guardrails or a framework to work within mm -hmm. as they're putting these ideas together, which helped them with their creative process. It is a really powerful tool when you're collaborating with your client, in this case, filmmakers who are able to go to and say, this is not just pure magic. There is something that is driving this. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, uh, anytime that you're doing any kind of creative yeah. work and you have to go to a group of, let's say, executives yeah. and say to them, do you all agree on, you know, if this piece of art we made is the best art? Like you're going to lose yeah, anytime yeah, you, yeah. you walk into a room and do that. So to be able to guide it and control the conversation with this logic was hugely helpful there. And then I think for the audience who goes and sees the film, even though the movie never pauses and the characters turn to the camera, look into it and say, can't you tell that this, you know, <laughs> sculpture that's morphing is vibranium particulate yeah. levitated by ultrasonic sound waves? They don't do that. 
but there's these little cues in the effect. It has a rhythmic bounce when it levitates in the air. And I think those little touches, those little details, those little cues start to scratch at a little bit of curiosity uh, within certain members of the audience's mind. Yeah. And I don't expect everyone that sees the film to walk away from it being like, did you see that vibranium interface? But there's a few people who I think get really fascinated yeah. by these things. And when they notice these little details and these little nuances, they become so much more curious about uh, the the technological world uh, and how it shapes that that society within the film. Yeah, what I find really interesting is that you, you almost have like two audiences. So no, normally you would be uh, designing an interaction or an interface that's really uh, meant for, for, for the user interacting with it or a group that interacts with it. But here there's, there's almost like this, this third person, third person view on it where we as an audience sitting in the cinema still have to understand what's happening. And you, you, you always have to keep these audiences well, in mind too. You're right? always supposed to design for your end user. Yeah, exactly. And, and yeah, in this case, we have two end users. We have the character in the film who often is supposed to be the smartest person in the world, yeah, right? Yeah, and and yeah. the person who is able to use the most complex system yeah. ever seen anywhere. And then we have the person, the other end user, which is the person sitting in the very last row of the movie theater, uh, munching popcorn, maybe not even hearing all the dialogue, yeah. loosely paying attention while glancing at things on their phone. Yeah. And we need to make sure that it communicates just as clearly to them as, yeah. as well. And that that presents all sorts of challenges and, and interesting things that I think there's often, um, you know, the best work that I see done in this space by teams that I've worked with, as well as many, many other teams that do this kind of work, is work that is able to balance that sort of like, there's something where you look at it and it feels incredibly rich and complex and sophisticated, but the way that it communicates is crystal clear and it sort of cuts through a lot of the the noise or the chaos that can be part of these these complex systems. And when did you go too far? Um, I mean, there's there's a number of different times where I think we've created things that have uh, a, a level of almost overwhelming complexity or or busyness but i would say that i'm i'm proud of both my my team and very much in the collaborative effort that we go through with the filmmakers there's always an inherent friction there where the filmmakers themselves often they don't care as much about that complexity yeah. or that level of detail that creative designers want to imbue it with that we yeah. want to pour everything into this piece because you know there's they're thinking well it's going to appear for you know a second and a half in your film but it's yeah. going to live on for an eternity <laughs> in my portfolio yeah. and, and whatnot yeah. and the filmmakers almost always are they they would many times be content to see an interface that has a 120 point typeface with text going from one side of the monitor to the other saying, yeah. you know, access denied in huge yeah. letters and whatnot. And we often spend a, a little bit of time sort of trying to coach or encourage the filmmakers not to go that far with it and to try and find ways to strike a balance so that the, the technology feels sophisticated, but also feels plausible at the same times. Whereas the the director or often even the editor of the film, these are really important tools for the editors of the film because they can help condense uh, storytelling and narrative, but they always want to make sure that that's going to cut through as clear as possible yeah. to the audience. I think that happens in Black Panther and also I think in Captain America Civil War where you're also allowed to do the end title. So not only do scenes in the movie, but... I think the technical term is main on end title. So yeah, when it's a title sequence that appears at the end of the film, yeah. the the technical term is like main on end title. But yeah. it's yeah, it's effectively you know a a, a uh, often in the Marvel films in particular a very expressive, very yeah. visual title sequence that often is almost like a celebration at the closing of the film or like yeah, a, a really music video that plays out, uh, tying up the themes of of the story. I think with Black Panther's like uh, purple, orange, you have this the, the the things that you designed with the sand with the team that became more like characters, like uh, warriors and panthers, almost like the things that we shortly saw in a movie. Now they they get their own center stage. I I loved that sequence in Black Panther, uh, the the main on end titles because it it was able to 
carry forward some of these ideas that we had designed for the technology with the film. It also bookends the film because the, the film opens with a history of Wakanda sequence that is sort of like a million years ago yeah, yeah, in, yeah. The, in the world of Wakanda. And that story was also told using the vibranium sand yeah. uh, paradigm as well. And so the, the movie opens with that, it sort of closes with it. The main on end title sequence is, a, is like the most expressive version of it. We're having a little more fun with it. It's yeah. pulsating yeah, yeah. Uh, to the music, which was really important because uh, we, we found out we had a call with the director, Ryan Coogler, at one point, uh, because we had been asking, what are we what are we gonna have for music with this? We really yeah. wanna tie in the music some way, somehow. And we were on a conference call with him and he said, well, here's the track that I'm thinking of using for the title sequence at the end of the film. And he's playing it over the phone and we're like holding our ears <laughs> up to the speaker phone in the, in the conference room, trying to hear it and we're listening and we can, you know, we can hear it. There's a hip hop beat to it. <laughs> and then all of a sudden we start hearing the lyrics come in and we looked at each other. And we were like, holy shit, that's Kendrick Lamar. Uh -huh. And he had Kendrick Lamar make a song for the, the title sequence for Black Panther, which to me, that was one of the most exciting moments of yeah. my entire career. And so we, we took that song. We actually were able to pipe it into our physics simulations that we were doing using uh, Houdini, yeah. a piece of software that makes unbelievably complex particle simulations. And we were actually able to have the music sort of like make the sand particles themselves pulsate to the beat of the music yeah. and have all these different effects that tied in really elegantly. And it was a great way of sort of like tying up the whole film at the, at the conclusion of that story. And this is, of course, a film that uh, came out, things that we can talk about. But is there something soon that comes out that we can still watch in the cinema? One that I'm really excited about, and I, I don't think I can go into great detail in our, in our involvement, but we had an amazing collaboration with the team at Pixar on the new uh, Lightyear film, working with them, which to me was a, an absolute dream come true for a number of different reasons. I mean, one, just working with Pixar, like that is a, that is a dream job. I consider yeah. Pixar to be, you know, right up there with, uh, you know, Apple as yeah. one of the holy churches of creativity that, that there are in this, in this world. And so it was amazing to collaborate with them. And I'm also just thrilled that that means that I will get to go to a movie theater with with my two wonderful kids, Jacob and, and Gianna, and, and share with them something that I had an opportunity to contribute to. What I think so amazing about Lightyear, you have the movie Toy Story in 1995, and he gets this little toy, Buzz Lightyear, the little astronaut, and he gets the toy in the film as, as if it was a toy that came with a film. And this is that film. I thought it was so beautiful. Like the, that's the, the story. But you did the end, main on end title, so we, the end credit. We, we made the main on end uh, title sequence for the for the film, and we worked really closely with the director Angus McLean, who yeah. was incredible to work with, and it was just a joy to collaborate with him and speak with him. And I think it's it's obvious when you see the film, but he is one of the biggest film geeks. I think I have ever encountered in in my entire life, and any any meeting, any conversation, any review that we were doing always had at least ten minutes of some sort of like almost like a challenge of trying to out geek each other <laughs> yeah. on obscure, yeah. you know, uh, '80s science fiction references or whatnot. Yeah. And he he won every single time, uh, <laughs> um, but it's uh, it, the the movie is amazing the aesthetic that they've created for it. If you have any appreciation for any sort of like science fiction styling, whether that's, you know, uh, James Cameron's Aliens or, or any anime of any kind, this is like one of the best executions of that aesthetic that I think I've, I've ever seen. Yeah, I'm so much looking forward to it, uh, to, to watch it, and to actually be in a cinema again. That, yeah, that, that, that is, absolutely. That that is possible. And um, I can imagine such a beautiful thing if you can work on that and also being able to share that 
with your kids. They couldn't watch the Marvel movies. Then. I ha I haven't ever taken them to the to the Marvel movies. They're they're probably a few years off from from that. And I look forward to one day sharing that yeah. with them. Uh, but I I'm almost worried that you know. Uh, I don't know, three or five years in, from now when they're old enough to yeah. see that, I worry that it'll kids won't care about superheroes anymore and they'll <laughs> oh, yeah. have moved on to, yeah. to something else. Uh, wait and see. But it's, 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 it's been fun in the meantime because they also, it, my, my kids are, uh, as they've been growing up, they're, they're gradually understanding, a, you know, a little bit better what I do. But, you yeah. know, my, my daughter, when she was in kindergarten, she would just, you know, tell her friends or her teachers, oh, my dad works with Captain America. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> That's so cool. <laughs> um, For someone that always thinks about the future, mm -hmm. you almost, all of a sudden have to think about your own future. What's ahead? So uh, that's a that's a really interesting and and complex question. Um, I'm really excited about what comes ahead for me, and you know my first priority in departing uh, the team at Perception, which is something that is like a deeply deeply emotional thing for me, and something that is uh, uh, very bittersweet. Um, I have so many incredible collaborators that I had spent so much time having uh, the best kind of creative experiences I think you could possibly have. And so there's moments even where I'm, you know, uh, looking at myself in the mirror and thinking, what, what are you doing, dummy? Why would you, <laughs> why would you leave your, your dream job? But uh, I'm very excited about what's what's ahead for me. Um, I, I can't go into too much detail, but I can say with tremendous confidence that uh, I'll be continuing to work on on designing the future of both, you know, uh, some really exciting concepts in in fiction, um, some really fascinating uh products for uh that will ultimately end up in in customers hands one day uh as well as working on the the future of automotive which is something that i'm very passionate about yeah because i was really surprised to see you actually also in the uh, introduction of the hammer ev it's like a uh, really wild electrical vehicle sort of uh, suv gone crazy mm -hmm. and they had like an introduction video but very often you don't yeah you see designers Nine out of ten, they come then from that organization. We don't really see people that from are from other organizations. I was really surprised to to see you in there. I think it also speaks highly of the work that you do and what you did at Perception that they actually feature you in the film. I think the creative director, you have a bit there with the creative director of General Motors. So I was uh, I was honestly just personally deeply touched that uh, my creative counterpart at General Motors, uh, Scott Martin, had invited me to come and personally participate in the marketing for the new Hummer EV. And that was, to me, both a, a, a really kind gesture of, of recognition for the work that myself and my team had contributed to this vehicle, but I think also spoke to the fact that General Motors as a, as a whole saw the value in celebrating the relationship of having a, a collaboration with minds that were as focused on ambitious visions of, of how technology uh, will function both, you know, today, but also in the future. And I think it goes without saying, you know, the the Hummer EV, whatever you think <laughs> of a wild uh, truck like this, it is an incredibly cinematic vehicle, right? Yeah. You you see one of these things driving down the street, and it looks like it's driven straight out of a Michael Bay film. Yeah. And uh, to me, that was the the perfect sort of vehicle to contribute to 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 collaborate on. And to to help you know push into a more ambitious uh, space than I think we see from from many other vehicles. Yeah. So the work that you did on there was um, uh, with the team was was yeah the interfaces inside the car also where you see the car for instance when it goes off roads you can see the pitch and roll you can uh, see it as a little car in the environment where it's in. I really loved how it goes from. Um, the day to night mode mm -hmm. when you 
which often is like day mode is light and then in dark mode of course in night mode everything is black but here it's like a sun that turns right like you see for a short bit the shadows of a mountain yeah and this is you know for me this was a really great example of finding that balance between the pragmatic and the cinematic um the hummer ev's instrument cluster does this great thing uh it was one of the first gm vehicles to have both a day and a night mode to its visuals, which sounds sort of like a, a fun personalization, but it actually serves a really important purpose. If you have a display with a dark background, which most displays traditionally do, work perfectly at nighttime because it's not too bright, it's not mm -hmm. blinding you while you're trying to focus on the road ahead. But in bright daylight conditions, you can get tremendous glare mm -hmm. on your screen, yeah. which could create, you know, difficulty in being able to yeah. read your instrumentation, could create confusion yeah. while driving. I mean, anything that causes any sort of uh, confusion or, or difficulty while you're operating a motor vehicle, it's a very serious, serious problem. The yeah. worst case scenario is very, very bad when you're working in this space. Um, so the Hummer EV has the ability to shift the instrument cluster to a bright background when you're in bright daylight conditions, which makes it much easier to, to read and, and understand. But we also use this as an opportunity that when those lighting conditions change, there's actually this really beautiful effect that happens where you're looking at the instrument cluster, the backdrop looks almost like a satellite view of lunar terrain. And that lunar terrain casts shadows that slide across the surface as if there is a sort of like sunrise yeah. or sunset that's happening. And it's a really beautiful transition uh, that I think creates this sort of like both a, a moment of delight, but it also is designed to endear the customer with an appreciation for how much quality has been worked into yeah. this system, how every single little thought or detail was considered. It would have been very easy just to say, okay, we're just gonna crossfade yeah. from dark background to bright background, but to have it feel like an actual animated sunrise is happening, uh, was very, very dramatic, very exciting. Yeah, very cinematic also. I really liked the detail. And then I, I, I loved also how it um, comes, uh, yeah, it's really holistic. So you see other parts in the, in the car where they have this sort of mountain pattern. I think also at the back, uh, so really in the physical part of the object, and then to see that also reflected in the digital part, I think that's a, a beautiful marriage. Well, I thought this was really cool, and this was something that that came from the team at, at General Motors, which was this idea that um, the Hummer EV has a very specific heritage behind it. Mm -hmm. It originated as a military vehicle, mm -hmm. right? and. I think when they rev when they brought out the Hummer brand for consumers in the early 2000s, I think that heritage was very celebrated. I think in today's day and age, I think of that sort of heritage as possibly being a little dystopian yeah. when thinking of a future yeah. product. And I think even many of us who love science fiction we do crave a little bit of dystopia. Yeah. You know, we all like Blade Runner. Yeah. We all love the grit and grime of Akira. Yeah. And I think it's really important to stay focused wherever possible on the optimism that can come yeah. with the future. And so the team at General Motors, I was really pleased that they put a lot of thought into referencing a collaboration that they had uh, a long time ago with NASA in creating the first ever lunar rover. General mm. Motors was very directly involved in that. And that is what brought in sort of the the lunar terrain backdrop yeah, that we yeah. bring in throughout the interface. And we see a lot of that sort of lunar topography yeah. all throughout the uh, the interior of the the Hummer EV, including you know the speaker grills have actual uh, topography from I, I believe it's called the the Sea of Tranquility. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it's on the moon and what? Yeah, yeah. And I think the in the concept version was so much, but now in the version that they actually launched with, they have this lunar gray interior. They referenced it everywhere. So we can imagine that it's either some sort of sports car, some sort of fast car that you're going to be working on now. 
Uh, I I I do love working on fast cars. It's a it's a personal obsession of mine. Um, my father has been a, a both my father and my uncle have been racing instructors for the last thirty years or so, and so it's not not uncommon that we have a, a family gathering at the greatest racetracks in the in the northeastern United States. Um, I've, uh, one of my first experiences working on any vehicle was actually designing the instrumentation for the Ford GT, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. which is a crazy hypercar from absolutely Ford, yeah. insane yeah. hypercar, total, total Ferrari killer, yeah, literally. Um, sort of vehicle. Yeah. yeah actually yeah, did that at Le Mans. Mm -hmm. They have a whole movie about that. They I have think, a whole, yeah. they've got a whole movie <laughs> yeah. about it. Uh, Ford versus Ferrari. And it was funny yeah. that the, none of that was even, they, I don't think they had even started making the movie when we were back when we were working on the project. Yeah. And it was really exciting to be deep inside of Ford. And when I say deep inside of Ford, there's literally a like secret underground bunker that the people above this bunker didn't know that wow. this car was being worked on down in, in below. Detroit. In Detroit, underneath Ford's product development center in, awesome. in Dearborn, Michigan, uh, they had at the, there was a long corridor in the basement that you would walk down that was just old castaway uh, uh, prototypes and styrofoam models of full-size vehicles with like sheets over them, dusty and whatnot. Yeah. You'd get to the end of this corridor and there was a little card swipe and then they'd bring you in and it was just like, I don't know, like eight dudes in a room yeah. around computers who were <laughs> who were working on it and working up the visualizations. I was like, wow, yeah. this is this is so cool. It was, and it was amazing too, because it was like, wait, it's just you guys? And they were yeah. like, yes, this is like a Skunk Works project, yeah. tiny team, just the most elite guys yeah. working on this thing. And then attached to that room was uh, this bigger studio space, still totally in the basement indoors, where they had the milling machine sculpting the the full size clay models and and everything, and that was uh, that that experience and that collaboration just from being a a super uh, car geek yeah. is something I'll never forget. I can imagine. Lastly, is there a design you're most grateful for? I I think for me it always ends up being the littlest, tiniest details yeah. that you notice and and surprise you that sort of, uh, you know, for me can always blow my mind. Oh boy, I gotta, I gotta think about this for a moment. Um, hmm. This one is very silly. Um, and it's a it's a story that I share from from time to time with with folks. There was a a weekend years back where my wife took the kids to grandma's house for the weekend and I was alone in my home without two small children there for like the first time since they had been born. Yeah. And if you have little kids and you ever find yourself in this moment, you will know that it is like it is surreal. It is unnerving. The quiet is like loud. Like it's like the the silence is like hissing in your ears. And it's like being in a sensory deprivation tank. Like you almost start like hallucinating a little bit. And I went and I opened up my refrigerator door with my heightened senses in this state. And I looked in and on the top shelf of the refrigerator, I had a gallon jug of milk, which is a very standard sort of thing to have, especially in the United States, to have on the top shelf of your refrigerator, one gallon jug of milk, which has a very specific shape. No matter where you are in the United yeah. States, you buy a gallon jug of milk, it comes in this very very same jug. And it was on the top shelf of the refrigerator, it was all the way to the side, and there was a light fixture inside the refrigerator. And I looked at it and the angle of the light fixture just happened to line up with the contour of the top of this gallon jug of milk. And I looked at it for a second. I was like, huh, I never noticed that before. Like it just perfectly lines up there. And then it hit me and like, imagine like the Martin Scorsese vertigo zoom happening on my <laughs> face as I'm looking at this dumbfounded and realizing like, this is not a coincidence. This isn't an accident. There was a designer 
who had to design this light fixture on the top of the refrigerator, and they could have made it any shape in the entire world that they wanted, but they chose to make it a shape that would allow me to put that gallon milk jug right up against that side of the top shelf of the refrigerator. And that like, that, that sent me into absolute ecstasy. Like just those, those little things, like I, it took me days to recover from, from that. So it's, it's, I'm sure there's many, many, many more profound things that I've encountered <laughs> in my life that are significantly more important than that. Um, but, uh, to me, it's just sort of like, I love those little things. Cause it, for me is a continual reminder that as a designer, you have to factor in, you know, the ways that what you're creating is going to impact the the people that are using it and that you always have to keep them at the front of your of your mind as opposed to, you know, your own portfolio or yeah, the, the, the final piece that you're going to hang up on the wall for for yourself. Yeah, and the beauty and the details creates the whole that makes it complete. Thank you so much, John. It was a real, real pleasure to have you on the show. Yeah, Harold, thank you so much for, for having me. It's been great talking with you, and it's been lovely to, to visit you here at the studio. Awesome. Thanks. Hi, I'm Brenna Foster, part of the team that works on Memberful Design. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Now, we want to hear from you. We're researching what makes communities, memberships, and movements so powerful. Or in short, how to better design for belonging. You can help by sharing your own experiences in our first listener survey. Go to memberful.design community or click the link directly in your show notes to complete the survey. It only takes a few minutes to share your wisdom and it's completely anonymous. Even better, we'll share takeaways on a future show. So keep listening and let's learn together. Many thanks from the entire Memberful Design team.